This episode is brought to you by TalkPython Training. The Six Figure Developer Podcast is all about leveling up your career in the tech space. Learning a little bit of Python will allow you to take your expertise and 10x it with automation, APIs, and even AI. The best place on the internet to learn Python is over at TalkPython Training. Visit talkpython.fm slash sixfigure to find your next level. That's talkpython.fm slash sixfigure. Welcome to the Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is George Neville Neal. Writing as Code Vicious, George Neville Neal has spent more than 15 years sharing advice and insights as a coder with attitude. George is a software engineer, author, and security nerd. Welcome, George. Thanks. Uh, so why don't you tell us how you got into the industry? So I'm old enough to have come up through the microcomputer age. Uh, I was one of those kids who had a, well, my first computer was a TI-99-4A, and then I had a Commodore 64, and I got paid to program on an IBM PC in high school um, for a very small insurance company in my hometown. And so I was exposed to computers probably from about the age of 15 or younger. And, uh, you know, the moment I started programming, just even in basic, it was like, oh, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. Um, nobody else under- around me understood what that meant. But they all did point out that computer programmers get paid well. So nobody tried to stop me from doing it. Um, and then I followed a, a fairly, I don't know, standard approach. I went to university. I uh, went to Northeastern University in Boston. Um, but spent a lot of my time hacking around other people's computers, um, learning how the early internet worked and maybe I broke into some computers, maybe I was just borrowing people's accounts. Um, but I spent a lot of time, uh, in particular looking at networking and distributed systems, got my degree, uh, went off to California where it didn't snow, uh, which was great. And, uh, you know, got into the world of Unixes, the world of BSD, um, which is what my other two books are about. And just I've always had a fairly broad set of interests centered mostly around networking, security, uh, low-level system software. I write a lot of device drivers or fix a lot of other people's device drivers. Um, and that's, you know, I've just always followed those interests and kept up on what was going on. And uh, what are you working on these days? I spend a lot of time looking at IoT, uh, unfortunately. So I uh, spent a long time doing embedded operating systems. So I'm known for having worked on FreeBSD and having written two books about the operating system. But the majority of my time when I wasn't working on open source kernels uh, was on proprietary run, uh, real-time operating systems. I spent six years at Wind River back in the late 90s working on VxWorks, doing, again, networking and, and embedded system software. and so. You know, IoT is basically embedded systems with a fancy marketing name. So a lot of my clients now, and I, I do consulting, a lot of my clients are trying to deploy IoT devices that do various things. Um, 
I can probably talk about the ones that have either gone out of business or I'm not working for anymore because I don't have an NDA. So um, people who want to do things like, you know, Wi-Fi light switches. Now, why you need Wi-Fi for your light switch? But it would be better if Bob down the street couldn't turn off your lights. So I went and helped a company to do that. Um, a medical device more recently, that's very scary. Um, if you... I do not recommend that you allow anyone to insert an embedded system into your body that is FDA approved because the FDA rules are written for, what is it? Not best effort, but best practices. So long as it's best practices, it should be fine. Um, it's all very interesting, but you know, as someone pointed out to me recently, there are no happy or cheerful security people. There are only... Oh, that. So I spent a lot of time, uh, most, most of my clients are in the IoT space. Um, and then uh, security work. So uh, I've worked recently on a DARPA project trying to do um, distributed systems for looking at uh, if we can figure out who fished whom. You know, someone fished the general, the general fished the colonel, the colonel fished the private. Well, was it the general who opened the mail or was it the private who opened the mail? That kind of stuff. And before we hit record, you and I were talking that I just recently, and recently is a relative term these days, as time has no meaning, uh, set up my own free, free NAS server. So I'm getting a little bit more familiar with FreeBSD, having not really spent a whole lot of time in the Linux Unix side of, of technology. What has it been like? You, you said you've been essentially in the free B or the FreeBSD realm since uh, for, for most of your career. So, um, I mean, the, when I was coming up, your interesting systems were either microcomputers. So, you, had to, you know, I was very into the 64. And then at one point, uh, actually, well, it's behind me, but behind me is blue. Um, in college, I actually worked on a piece of package software for a system called the Commodore Amiga, which was a 68,000 based. A lot of people know the, fa the fancy games. But it was a very powerful microcomputer that somehow people were able to buy. Um, but what really interested me was networking. So when I was breaking into machines at MIT and using the early NSF net and learning about TCP IP, I wanted to write programs that would be distributed in nature. And a lot of those systems were BSD-based systems. So, um, you know, there were, back then, there were these things called VAXs, which were the size of the, the small office I'm sitting in right now. Um, these ran early TCP IP stacks and they ran BSD because the first... TCP IP stacks that existed on the internet for the most part were running on early versions of BSD long before there was a free BSD. It's the research project at Berkeley. And so I started getting into machines like that. And so I was using BSD for quite a while. Um, and then when I, let's see, I was two years out of university when NetBSD, which was the first open source BSD, um, app, well, the first usable open source BSD, there was one called 386. For that, but NetBSD, you could install it on a laptop with a lot of work. Uh, and so I was working at a university in Holland, and all of my colleagues were running Plan 9, which was what Koenig and Ritchie were going to replace Unix with, which they never replaced Unix. Uh, and another colleague of mine, Peter Bos, he and I had these really I mean, 25 megahertz compact laptops. They were top of the line. Um, and we put NetBSD on it. And once I had an open source BSD that was available to me and I didn't have to borrow time on people's vaxes with or without their knowledge, 
Um, then I just spent all of my time working on BSD-based systems, NetBSD, and then uh, FreeBSD a couple of years later uh, because that was well suited for laptops. Um, I've always been very interested in mobile computing. I travel a lot and you don't wind up picking up multiple languages sitting at home. Um, so I am very happy to live in a world with cheap portable computing. Um, I have both a FreeBSD laptop, which is currently a Dell, uh, and a Mac laptop, which I refer to as pretty BSD since their kernel is our kernel. And I frequently travel with both. So once FreeBSD was running on early laptops, I, that's all I ever ran because then I had a real full Unix in front of me. I had a network stack and I could write distributed systems. In addition to all the technology work and, and consulting, you also do a fair bit of writing as well, doing a lot of writing under the Code Vicious moniker. How did that come about? Code Vicious came about because Q, the magazine that I, I wound up on the editorial board, I wouldn't say by accident, uh, my friend Eric Allman was on the board and they were looking for someone to do an issue about embedded systems. So I showed up one night to dinner and I laid out a whole issue to embed, about embedded systems. I was still working at Wind River at the time, it was the late 90s. And uh, the board was so excited by the fact that someone showed up with a complete issue, they added me to the board. <laughs> and, then, um, and then about a year later, uh, the magazine, this is when the magazine was first starting, uh, we didn't have any columnists. And so one of the ideas of the board, not my idea initially, was that we should have some columnists. And, you know, I had written some papers. I've been writing book reviews. I, I've always written about technology in one way or another. Um, and uh, Wendy Kellogg, who was at the meeting, said, well, we should have someone write a really, you know, a, a, some sort of articles with or a column with a real attitude. It should be someone with an attitude problem who's bald. And at the time, <laughs> when we were all younger on the board, I was the only one who shaved their head. So now we have more bald members on the on the keyboard. And, uh, I said, sure, I would try it. And, you know, we, we came up with sort of a character sketch, um, which didn't really work. It was very Miss Manners. If you remember who Miss Manners is, well, people who know me well know that I'm not always polite. Uh, so I wrote, wrote a couple of pieces in the Miss Manners vein. And then I was like, uh, what if I wrote this in my real voice? Um, and then I did. And then we, it took us a while to come up with a name, some of which were ridiculous. They're actually, Laid out in the in the introduction of the book, I explain how how Code Vicious came to be, um, and I'm you know an old punk rock, so Sid Vicious, Code Vicious, oh okay, and that's how that stuck. And then you know once you start writing fifteen hundred words to three thousand words every month, ten months of the year, um, and you have a really good editor, uh, Jim Moore, I think is thanked more in the book than any one other person. Because uh, he turns my writing into, well, stuff that's allowed to be published by ACM <laughs> and Pearson. Anyway, so when you, you have a good uh, editor and one who keeps on you, uh, I wouldn't say it's easy, but being on a cadence eventually, it was just like, okay, well, I have this thing to write this month. And now it's every other month, but it's still, you know, a couple weeks before Jim. The, the nice thing about a really good editor is they get to know your patterns. Like Jim has edited, you know, Scientific American and ACM and all these other, you know, high flying technical folks. And so the thing I noticed at one point is that he wasn't socially engineering me completely, but he had learned my patterns well enough to know when to ask for the next piece. Um, and that really made it easier because then it's like, oh, okay, well, oh, that's the mail from Jim. 
I should panic in about three days because that means I've got seven days to get the the thing done. And that's that's been our pattern ever since. He just <clears throat> he just sent me an email yesterday saying that the next one's due. So I think I've got seven days. So the latest book is is the collected code vicious, right? Are those just a, a collection of past articles or? So it's past articles, but with a lot of new framing. And and the nice thing is, it's kind of like jazz. Like you, you know, you have these pieces and you're like, oh, well, I haven't looked at that in seven years. I can riff on that in a different way. And so the interstitial parts, the introductions are where all the new material is. Um, you know, I tried to keep the the letters as uh, close as they were to the originals. There were a few things I had to change. It turns out that uh, publishers are a little more, a little less comfortable with certain types of language in the last couple of years. What I find hilarious is that ACM is an academic publisher and they let me get away with that. But uh, Pearson was like, yeah, you can't use that word currently. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not disparaging a person. You really can't use that word. Okay. Well, we'll figure out another word. That's not that word. Um, So the letters themselves are relatively unchanged, um, but the all of the framing material is new. And I get to the nice thing is you get to go back and be like, oh, you know, do I agree with this? Is this what I still think? Or did the industry change? Do I disagree? I didn't put in so much that I disagreed with, but did the industry change? And then I could say, oh, and by the way, here's these other five things you should really know about. And so a lot of the new material is, yeah, so here's this letter that's on one topic, but these other three related topics, let me tell you about what I think about those first. That's where the new material is. Of course, Don Knuth was extremely kind in writing an introduction. So that's all all new material as well. Were there any surprises going back over some of the the older material? So what was interesting to me is, so Jim actually had, let's not use the word nag. Jim had tried to convince me to do a book for two or three, maybe. uh, I think now it's four years because it was three years. And then I did the book and it took about nine months. Um, and I was quite resistant to it because I didn't want to rehat, you know, I didn't want to take the top 100 and just splat them in a book. Um, so the biggest surprise was when I finally went back and looked through the top 100, because that's kind of the, the way to do it, uh, the top 40 or whatever it was, um, was that there actually were themes. Because, you know, if you're writing a column every month or every two months um, and you're writing on diverse topics in technology and you don't plan to have a theme, Right. It's like because the letters, you know, letters come in or they're derived from things that I've seen where I thought, okay, well, this should really be a code vicious. You know, the the topics each month are different. There's there's no plan of like, oh, this this week I'm going to talk about networking and next month I'm going to talk about security and next month I'm going to talk about scheduling algorithms or, you know, dealing with your manager or marketing or whatever I'm going to talk about. There's there was never a plan beforehand. What there is is a a list of the letters that I haven't answered as well as ideas I've had for things that would be good. And then I just sort of pick the one that works best. So when I went back to look at the, the top 40, um, I discovered that there were themes and that's actually how we have the five chapters in the, in the book, you know, that there was a narrative. One of the things I think is really important in technical books and that a lot of technical people don't do. Actually, I think there's an art, there's a letter about this. People who write technical books, not tech writers actually understand this, people who write manuals, but people who come from technology and then write often don't understand that technical books must have a narrative. You have to go from the reader having less knowledge to the reader having more knowledge. And you, your job is to take them on a journey from A to B so that they learn something. So when I went back over it, it was this surprise of, oh, 
there are themes. There's a narrative. I can make it out of this. It's I, I'm not going to have to kill myself to figure it out. That was a an interesting surprise. Some of the stories in the book are about uh, well, kind of the the human elements and uh, management dealing with uh, their subordinates. Uh, do any of those uh, stand out to you as a as an example of what to do or what not to do? So my favorite one, and and this is in this uh, chapter I called Human to Human, which I called it that because the networking chapter is called Computer to Computer, uh, is a piece about um, a ship called the Vasa. So many years ago now, I was in Stockholm uh, for a ACM conference. It was SIGCOM. And um, the Vasa is a ship that was built, I think, in the 1500s uh, by the Swedish king. And... You know, they were building this. It was a warship. The idea was that they would go to war with, I think, the Poles. What was most interesting about that is it's this classic story. You read this, you read the things in this museum, and the museum is beautiful. So what happened was the, you know, they built this ship, and it was built with a single line of gunwales, right? You get the guns that go across. You look like an old sailing ship. And uh, then the king discovered that the Polish had ships with two sets of gunwales, top and bottom. And said, well, this ship, the Vasa, is going to have that. And the ship designer said, uh, that's not going to work. And the king's like, well, I'm the king and I'm paying for it. So put in a second set of guns. And so they put in a second set of guns. And at the time, the way you tested ships, this is what the, there was no computer testing. You didn't simulate the ship. Was you got a bunch of sailors. You took the ship out. And the sailors ran back and forth across the deck to see if the ship would tip over and sink. Um, and so they did this test and the sailors ran back and forth and it immediately started to tip. And they're like, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. They went to the king and they said, no, you know, okay, look, this is not a good idea. He's like, look, I'm the king, sail the ship. And off they went uh, with a minimal crew into the middle of the harbor and a mild wind came along and the ship tipped over and boom, <laughs> directly to the bottom of the water. It killed a bunch of people. There was this huge inquest. The king was not blamed, it turns out, but no one was blamed because, well, the king couldn't be blamed and they weren't going to blame the guy who designed the ship. So it was nobody's fault. And you read these things as you're walking around the ship and you're like, I worked on projects like that. They didn't sink to the bottom of the water and hopefully no one was killed. But this, like, that's 460 years ago, I think. You're like, yeah, people haven't changed much. Management really hasn't changed. And you know, maybe the king is now your CEO or your CTO, but there's still this issue of people not listening to good technical advice. Yep, I've I've had that job. Well, I, I hope no one wound up at the bottom of the ocean. The ship didn't sink and, and no one died, but... <laughs> you want to know where all the security bugs in, in embedded systems come from? It's like, oh yeah, we left that thing dangling in the wind and then you put it into a power system sitting on a power pole and little Bobby can now log into the power system and flash, you know, Alice's lights. That's a, that's a feature. It's uh, for ease of management. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's, and the password is password because the, you know, the lineman always forgets the password. And looking through the, the chapters and the, uh, the table of contents for the upcoming book, um, some of the, the chapter titles that stick out to me are like cursed code. Um, there's an entire chapter over coding conundrums. Uh, are there other stories that, that you could share uh, that, that wouldn't need a visual to translate to podcast? 
uh, Chris Code is a good example. Um, and it's it's funny because, or ironic, because it wasn't me who did it. Um, I mean, Chris Code is all about, you know, I don't know about the two of you, but definitely broken software makes me angry and I will make comments in the code that perhaps are not meant for a general audience. But it's really important, you know, as the point of, the, of that piece is it's important not to do that. And in that case, uh, it was a, a place I was working where at the time there was some limitation on some Windows platform where you couldn't save a file without a dot extension and then read it back or so there's some weird thing. And the developer, you know, there would be a thing that says, you know, you must name your project foo.bar or foo.whatever. But if you didn't give it a dot something, um, he decided that it would be dot a four letter word um, and that he'd remove that before we shipped, uh, which he didn't. So there was a 0.01 release. Um, and actually, um, interestingly enough, from a, from a uh, job security standpoint, he wasn't fired um, because he was the only one willing to work on the Windows port of the software. <laughs> so he, he had really good job security, turns out. But uh, yeah, that was, that was an interesting one. And, you know, I've worked at places, and this is, I guess, very common in open source. In these, some places were not open source, but I've worked in places even with proprietary software where occasionally our source code would be given to customers. Uh, this is pretty common in the embedded world where one of your customers says, oh, I can't make the, you know, the foo widget module work. And, you know, we'll just send them like, well, here's the module, try it on your weird little board that you've got. But, you know, when we send them the module, we don't want it to have our colorful commentary or whatever it was Spock's comment in, uh, in that, uh, in the movie, you know, colorful metaphors inside the source code. Um, which I think is actually, you know, it seems silly, but it's actually relatively important. I think a lot of developers, myself included, might have anger management issues. <laughs> and so not taking them out in the code is probably a good thing to learn. Well, gone are the days that developers were just the pasty people that are in the basement that you throw Mountain Dew and pizza at. Now developers are expected to be contributing members of the team to the discussions to the requirements gathering, to the communicating to the rest of the organization, what they're working on, what the what features they're delivering, and, and how best to do that. Yes and no. Um, so it, I find it to be, uh, I, wonder, I don't want to call it area or technology dependent. In, in products that are more human facing, which we have a lot more of them now than when I was young, um, you know, it used to be, look, if, if it's 80 by 24 green on black, then it works, right? So like, you know, now we have fancy stuff. Um, definitely, you know, sort of the agile scrum kind of things, um, which often those products face actual humans, like, you know, someone's grandparents, not, not another nerd who's consuming it. Um, I think in those cases, we've done a better job of convincing developers that, look, you really need to, to be involved in the human component of this and not just, you know, eating pizza and sliding code out from under your door. But um, that changes in places like scientific computing um, and a lot of other uh, areas. It is still the case in deeply embedded systems and operating systems and 
especially a lot of firmware. And it's funny or ironic because firmware is something that has to be explained a lot more than a lot of things because it's so fiddly. Um, you know, I mean, I love people who have manuals full of, of what, right? It's like, well, this is the foo bit and this is the bar bit and this is the baz bit. Yeah, but what happens when I flip them? This is the foo bit and this is the, and you're like, no, 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 no you're not helping. Um, so it's, it's very much, uh, I find dependent on, on where you are in the stack and, uh, how much, you know, also it's company to company too. I mean, some company cultures are really good at this. Some company cultures are not. And that, you know, some, I think some people would assume that that is an old versus new, like, you know, they would assume like an IBM, you know, like IBM's mainframe division, which still makes a ton of money would be like this old school thing. And then, you know, they're whatever the Watson division would not be. But I have found in my career that any, any group of nerds who get together and build a significant artifact can devolve into the, yeah, we just typed it. If it's hard to, it was hard to write. So it should be hard to understand that that keeps coming up, unfortunately. So is there enough material to, to keep you going? Are you still getting letters and, and finding ways to impart wisdom to the masses? <laughs> I mean, impart wisdom is probably a bit highfalutin. Um, can I still get angry every other month? It turns out that my anger management issues have not gone away. And I, I only have 20 or 20, well, maybe less than 20 years till I am nominally retired. So I do not think that I'm going to run out of material. You know, do I need to write another piece about like indentation or which is something I just covered, TAS versus spaces or stuff? Probably not. Um, but on the security front, oh my God, I will never run out of time. I mean, I will, I will, yeah, I will. I mean, I'm, my life will end before those problems are solved. Um, because, you know, half the time, and this is one of the things that I think people who don't spend a lot of time doing security work don't understand. It's not the genius in the basement with, you know, figuring out your crypto algorithm that's going to break your system. It's the fact that we do not know how to build large complex artifacts that we configure correctly every time or any, you know, we have not solved any of those problems. It's, it's, you know, Bob didn't put the, the VPC credentials in the right place and now everyone has them. Um, so those kinds of things, I mean, you know, there was someone just sent me a link, I think it's from ours, uh, about a coffee machine that is so badly broken that it starts bit mining on behalf of some attacker the moment you plug it in. Now, why you needed to plug your coffee maker into the internet is another question. But yeah, the, the moment the thing comes up, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm mining Monero. Um, you're like, oh, okay, how did this happen? And you go backwards and you're like, oh, it's a terrible idea. Okay, I'm going to take a note. <laughs> so yeah, I don't think I'm going to run out. I, I mean, in a way, I wish I would run out of material. I'd like to live in that brave new world, but I don't think we're anywhere near Utopia. Yeah, we just had our air conditioner replaced in our home, and it came with a, a bright, shiny new computer interface that attaches to the wall and connects to Wi-Fi. And I don't know why. Because those wires are pesky. I mean, consider this. Cars are about to be deployed with Ethernet instead of CAN bus. And we know how well Ethernet always works. And Ethernet never fails in a data center. And it never gets overloaded when a bunch of things are going on, like you're slamming the brakes and turning the wheel at the same time. So what could possibly go wrong? Safety critical systems, you know, just scary. 
So, so what's next for you? When, when does the, the book come out and, and how often are you publishing articles these days? The articles are still every other month in ACMQ and then they go from Q to ACM's uh, main magazine, which is called uh, Communications of the ACM, CACM. Uh, so they're published in both places. I, I am told by my publisher I'm not allowed to retire. Um, I mean, technically I could, but, you know, I don't think... I think as long as Jim and I are both breathing, I'm going to get an email every two months going, you're ready yet? Um, the book comes out, I'm told, October 29th. And since publishing and printing deadlines are real deadlines, not like software deadlines, I actually believe the publisher. Um, in the, when I did the first FreeBSD book, I had a little uh, motorcycle accident, which, remit, which meant I could not type for six weeks. And that delayed the publication of that book. And that was not a good moment because that's a real delay. Uh, so that'll, uh, the, the paper book will be out on the 29th. I'm told the ebook will be out after that, which I kind of find it kind, which I find kind of funny um, because it's an ebook. Don't you just, there's a button, but whatever. Um, I'm not in control. I, I have signed off on all the edits and all the changes and I, you know, I am done uh, at least for this edition. Um up after that, I'm going to actually be doing some live trainings based on the book. So talking about the various topics in the book in uh, live trainings for Pearson. Um, it turns out that video is a very big component of publishing now. And which as an old school person who, I mean, I read books on, on an e-reader. Okay. I don't carry around hundreds of pounds of paper anymore, but I'm a book person. So, uh, I mean, I've done lots of video and training and things like that. But Pearson's very excited about that. So that'll be fun. Um, looking at doing some things around networking for DevOps. Um, I've spent a lot of my career dealing with networking for people who are writing the code. <clears throat> but there's a much larger audience of people who have to deal with that code every day. And how to... One of the things I find kind of lacking in the industry that I really want to help with uh, is teaching more people who don't spend their times in the bowels of a network stack, how to know why the network is broken, right? You know, why does this application not work? Those kinds of things. And there's, I mean, there are things around this that have existed before, but that's kind of my next, my next area to, to work on in in more detail. And certainly coming out of the, the code vicious book where I realized I had a whole chapter on networking just over a bunch of, letters that have come out over the last number of years and that there, there was a narrative there. It's like, Oh yeah. Okay. Networking is a thing. I'm, I'm going to go do more networking stuff. What has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their careers? I mean, one of the things I always encourage people to do, and, and it's funny because it's counter to the sort of video narrative is reading, um, read broadly and find good authors. So, there are a ton of technical books published every year. And they're, you know, it's funny, people are like, oh, there's so many technical books now. I'm like, there were tons of technical books when I was young. But the number of authors who can actually explain things well uh, is a much smaller percentage. So, um, you know, the classics are Don Knuth's books. If you're mathematically oriented, he's, he's the one to go read, um, especially if you're going to go off and do, you know, things like machine learning um, and all this, you know, any of this sort of AI related stuff is all going to be algorithmic and, you know, Don Knuth's the, um, uh, the art of computer programming is the canonical reference there. It's the thing to read. And, and he's a great writer, um, for systems level books. 
Um, and for people who want to work on those kinds of things, I mean, I would recommend my book. But I also think uh, Andy Tannenbaum has done some good work. Uh, Richard Stevens, who's unfortunately been gone from us for 20 years, the still the reference for me on understanding how networks actually work. Um, Raj Jain on performance analysis. So, you know, finding those and those actually, I have a list in the book of, of authors I think are, are worthwhile. I think sitting down and, and picking a topic and reading through it are really important. For me, it was always very easy. I mean, the work wasn't easy, but to picking what to do was easy because there were um, a small but significant number of things that were interesting to me. Um, you know, it was always ironic to me when people were like, oh, I'm going to go off and do this because that's how I can make the most money. I'm like, yeah, but do you want to spend your days looking at that? And they're like, no, but I can make the most money. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to go look at things that are interesting to me. And so I always, you know, followed my interests. Now, I am quite lucky that I work in an industry where almost all of my industry in almost all of my interests were, you know, things I could get jobs doing. So I didn't have to be that guy in a basement, you know, scrounging for gear doing the work. Um, but following your interests is, I think, really important advice that most people don't get at university. Um, other things that helped me were finding mentors. Um, you know, there are, so, uh, Kirk McKusick, who I co-authored the two free BSD books that I worked on with, um, you know, I read his book in college, which since Kirk is older than me, I like to tease him and say, I read your book in college. <laughs> <laughs> he, he takes it pretty well. Um, but you know, I have been very lucky to find people in the industry and people I've worked with who understand things and understand how to explain them. I mean, one of the things I think we suffer from in technology is, you know, a lot of us, me included, got into technology because it's like, oh, here's my little corner and I don't have to talk to anyone and I can make these bits go and make the lights flash and do this cool thing and I can buy pizza and Mountain Dew and I'm good. Um, but, you know, it's it's really important to find those people you can learn from. And it's different for everyone. I mean, I I definitely have a different learning style than other people I've met in the industry. It's it's knowing when you're lucky enough to meet someone who has knowledge and can, can impart it to you. I mean, the same thing is true if you do a traditional university, you know, a CS degree. Some of your professors, you're like, wow, that was great. And some of you are like, you really shouldn't be talking to people. <laughs> you should go back to your research. Please, please don't talk to people anymore. Uh, do you have any social media accounts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, so the main one for the for Code Vicious and for the book is actually at Code Vicious uh, with the K and an underscore between Code and Vicious. Um, there's also the book website, which is fairly minimal, CodeVicious.io. Um, but the the social media stuff at the moment is pretty much all Twitter. Um, I mean, I have personal social media stuff that in in this year I barely use for reasons that I think everyone has pretty much figured out. Um, but for technology, I've I've mostly uh, been on Twitter, following a bunch of people there, and being followed, and just you know, it's sort of the not all of it is uh, what we like to call disaster porn, but there's plenty of that. Um, but there are new things that show up that are interesting. All right, thanks, George. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Oh, thanks for having me on. It was really fun. That was George Neville Neal. Writing as Code Vicious, George has spent more than 15 years sharing advice and insights as a coder with attitude in ACM's Q Magazine. 
He is a software engineer, author, and security nerd with other varied interests who speak several languages, including Japanese. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at SixFigureDev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I am John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. Thank <laughs> you.